me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning. We'll be picking up at the very end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 in our time together today. We've been looking at the book of Ruth and thinking about the, the kind of picture of family and belonging that's communicated there and how God does this incredible work of redemption in the book of Ruth. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and we fast forward to where we get today, we're, we're witnesses to this incredible story of redemption. So I want to zero in on that idea today. What does it mean that God is redeeming his people? I think one of the themes we can notice in Scripture is how redemption runs through it. How God himself is the redeemer of his people. And from the the very beginnings of that story, right in Genesis 1, when the, the story plunges into chaos and into sin, and into brokenness, and into bondage. Bit by bit, we see God setting about and doing the work of redemption, of buying back what was lost, of claiming what was, what was given away. And in the book of Exodus, maybe in, in the most striking fashion, we see for the first time God naming himself as the one who buys back, as the one redeems, right? In the context there, the Hebrew people whom God has promised a great and glorious future to, an inheritance of of land to, have been taken as slaves under the captivity of, of Pharaoh. And they're crying out for rescue. They're crying out for release. And as God begins to raise up Moses and Aaron, right, God gives Moses this promise. He says, go and tell the Israelites, I'm the Lord I'm the one who will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with my own outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. God is our redeemer. Today, as we move through the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, we see a kind of a a micro-story of redemption that I think is is paradigmatic for the macro-story of redemption God works in each one of us. So as we think about what it means to be redeemed, how redemption takes place, what the character of redemption looks like, my hope is that we don't just think about that on a historic level or an intellectual level, but we would also begin to name, where is God redeeming you? How is God changing your story from what it was in the past to what it will be in God's future? And Scott, I really appreciated your testimony this morning and just heard a beautiful example of God redeeming and going in and finding you and leading you into the future he had prepared for you. I think that that in and of itself could be another sort of storybook or, or paradigmatic case of redemption. So as we read through Ruth, the end of three, the beginning of chapter four today, I want you to be asking, where is God at work redeeming you and me, and even redeeming us collectively as a people and as a church? Let me pray for us as we open up 
the word of God together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that our stories are ones of being redeemed. Not stories of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Not stories of self-made women and men, but stories of redeemed people who know the strength of our God, the strength of your pursuing love. May you help us to know what your redemption is like so that we can personally hope in, hope for, wait for that work in our hearts and lives. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the end of Ruth chapter 3. And again, Ruth is this, this great drama, this great story. I think if, if Ruth were to be set into a, you know, a play or a film context, this would very nearly be bringing us to the climax of the story. And if you can remember back to, to last week, we saw Ruth and Boaz engaged in this kind of romantic rendezvous at the threshing floor. And Ruth makes this bold proposal of marriage to Boaz. And Boaz looks upon that proposal kindly, but, but there's more to do. There are details yet to be worked out, and we're not sure if this marriage, if this union between Boaz and Ruth is going to happen. And so as the, the sun rises on a new morning, we come to the end of chapter 3, and we wait to see what will become of these plants. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says, When Ruth came back to her mother-in-law that morning, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? And then she told everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. Don't go back to her empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter. Wait until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I think we get a, a glimpse of what redemption looks like in this brief exchange there at the beginning of this new morning. But there's so many details in this story, so many little things that get lost in a quick reading and even get lost in our translation into English. But I think they help us clue in on what the characters are thinking and feeling and noticing. There's one little detail as, as Ruth comes back through the door early that morning here in verse 16. Naomi greets her, but, but in Hebrew, the words are not how did it go, but literally, who are you? Who are you as this person comes through her door? Which suggests that, that as Ruth comes home from her visit to the threshing floor, it's still probably dark out. It's still early, uh, early in the morning. And so when she comes through Naomi's door, Naomi is wondering, is this a stranger? Is this an intruder? Who are you? What are you about? 
And I love the, the way that Ruth answers that question. She hands Naomi there in the wee hours of the morning a scarf, her own scarf, filled to overflowing with six measures of flour. And I think in that moment, this is a, a sign to her, both of, of what happened at the, the, the threshing floor, who she is, and also what Naomi can expect to come. Sure, in, in just a few moments, Naomi, in holding that scarf, would have pieced together that the scarf belonged to Ruth, right? This is her daughter-in-law returning from the mission she sent her on. She would have discerned that there was a gift inside that scarf, right? An, an abundance of flour, which suggests that Boaz looked favorably upon Ruth's visit. And as they took the flour, I, I can imagine Ruth and Naomi sitting down and, and maybe using some of that flour to cook cakes for breakfast that day. And Ruth beginning to fill Naomi in on all the details of what happened the night before. About how, how she went to the threshing floor, how she uncovered Boaz's feet. How in surprise, he, he asked, who was she? And and Ruth identified herself and then made this bold proposal of marriage to him. Now Boaz, in his, his hesed loving character, again, looked favorably upon that proposal, but told Ruth to wait. Told Ruth that he needed to settle some things first. And that there was another redeemer, another kinsman, closer than himself that he needed to, to set things straight with first. But he promised to her that he would do everything in his power to redeem her as his bride. So as they're talking that morning and as they're, they're going back over the details, they have this gift of flour that Ruth has brought back. And if you look in verse 17, I think there again is a key detail. It says that before Ruth left the threshing floor early in, in the morning, before she left, the last thing Boaz does is he says, make sure you take this, this gift, back to Naomi. And he says, you need to take it back to her so that you do not return to her empty. Do not return to your mother-in-law empty. That is of utmost importance to Boaz. And again, I think this signals to us that throughout the story, Boaz has been noticing the people who need belonging, who need restoration, who need care, who need welcome, who need filling. And I think it means to me that Boaz was there back in chapter 1 on the day that Naomi returned to Bethlehem. On the day that she came back from Moab, she was full of despair she was full of, of grief and trauma. And as the women began to say, is this, is this, could this possibly be the Naomi we once knew? Right? Naomi says to the women of her village in chapter 1, When I went away to Moab, I was a woman full, full of life, full of good things. But today, as I come back to Bethlehem, the Lord has brought me back 
empty, empty-handed. It's the same word used here. On that day in chapter 1, Naomi returned to Bethlehem feeling hopeless, feeling keenly her own emptiness. And she brought that emptiness as a lament, as a charge before God. God, why have you failed on your promise to me? But in chapters 2 and chapters 3, we see God quietly beginning to, to go about filling up and addressing that emptiness in Naomi. We see evidence that God has noticed her lament. First, he, he provides for her and Ruth by, by allowing Ruth to stumble into Boaz's field and to experience favor from him. God begins to empty, uh, to fill up that emptiness by, by filling physically their pantry with, with grain from Boaz's field as, as Ruth continues to glean. And I think maybe most significantly, God fills up Naomi's emptiness by rekindling this relationship with their, their kinsman, Boaz. So much so that when Naomi identifies Boaz in chapter 2, when Ruth says, yeah, I met this man named Boaz, Naomi says, that man is our redeemer. Right? He will stand in this place of changing our story. Begin to see hope returning to Naomi through the person of Boaz. Boaz is a redeemer who sees what was empty and who goes about applying himself to the work of filling up again. Redemption is about this work of refilling. I'm just old enough to remember in my childhood when people drank Coke and Sprite and Pepsi out of glass bottles. And you'd go to the store, and I think they, they had maybe some cans and two liters when I was a kid, but you could still purchase soft drinks in these reusable glass bottles. Right, and so once you finished drinking them, you would put them out in your garage, and then eventually you would take them back to the grocery store, or you could take them to these places called right, redemption centers. And I like how in, in that day and age, right, the, the vessel that you drank from wasn't just crushed down and melted and discarded after a single use, but they took the time right, to clean the bottles thoroughly, to polish them up again, and then they would refill them to send them out another time. Again and again, they would repeat this. In fact, many parts of the world still use glass bottles. And there's, I think, something to me that's, that's attractive about those bottles that have been dinged up a little. You, you buy a, a Coke in a glass bottle, and there's some scratches on the outside. But it, it tells you that that bottle has had a long history right, of being filled and emptied, but then refilled again over and over. It's been redeemed on a number of occasions. I wonder if you think about your own story, if you can think back to times where you were empty, but God worked in your circumstances to refill you. Maybe not immediately, but, but over time in many cases. God engaged in the work of your redemption. 
I wonder if you were to take stock of, of yourself today, what level are you at? Are you nearing empty? Are you full with evidence of God's new and fresh work in your life? Perhaps we need the, the filling work of a redeemer as well. Like Naomi says to Boaz, that man will be our redeemer. Maybe we need to say to Jesus, this man is our redeemer. This man is the one who can fill up our emptiness. He's the one who can recover a sense of hope and future for us. Well, here again at the end of chapter 3, I think Boaz purposefully selects this gift, a full scarf, full to overflowing with grain, as a symbol, as a sign to Naomi. And it's his promise, it's his commitment to do everything in his power to redeem them, to be their goel, to be their redeemer for their family. And I think in giving them that gift, Boaz is, is saying through the gift, as surely as the Lord lives, you and your daughter will have whatever fullness I possess, whatever fullness I can give to you, whatever I have is yours. And I love how Naomi interprets that gift in verse 18. Right? Seeing the gift and, and probably sensing some of Ruth's anxiety about how this day is going to turn out, whether Boaz will be successful. Look at the hope Naomi has in verse 18. Right? Basically, she tells Ruth, relax today. Boaz has got us covered. Right? Boaz will not sit still until he has a ring on your finger, until he has resolved and redeemed our family. You can sense this incredible shift from chapter 1 and her emptiness to the fullness and anticipation at the end of chapter 3 in Naomi. Well, meanwhile, we get to the start of chapter 4, and we see what, what Boaz is up to that same morning. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate in Bethlehem, and he sat down there just as another guardian redeemer, the one he had mentioned to Ruth. Another guardian redeemer came along, and Boaz said to him, Come over here, my friend sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten elders of the town and he said to them, sit down. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, your relative Naomi, she is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and to suggest to you that you buy it in the presence of those seated here today and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not redeem it, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And so this other redeemer said, I will, I will redeem it, he said. He can sense Boaz's heart sinking. 
But verse 5, Boaz says, But on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order that you would maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, the redemption and transfer of property, in order to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. In the start of chapter 4, we see Boaz having promised Ruth, I will be your redeemer. I will engage in this way. I will do everything in my power. Now Boaz has to go and do some negotiating. He has to settle this legally in the, the village square. But I think it's, it's safe to say that negotiations and, and legal settlements look differently in ancient Israel than they do today. Right? When was the last time after you bought a car or signed your mortgage that someone took off their shoe and handed it to you, you know, as a, as a sign of that transaction? So what I want to do is just very briefly sketch kind of what I think is going on here, the dynamics of this negotiation. We're told that, that Boaz goes up to the city gate in Bethlehem, and the city gate really is like the court. Right? It's, it's the public place where official decisions get made. And the passage says that just as he arrives there at the village gate, he begins to pull the elders of that community in because they are going to serve like the jury, the judge. They're, they're going to weigh in on this important matter that needs to be discussed. But in addition to Boaz and the elders, he needs to find this other kinsman redeemer, this other relative that stands before him in the, in the line of redemption. And the text indicates that on that morning, at that very moment where he's seeking this man's audience, he just happens to pass by, just happens to be on his way, maybe out, out of the gate and, and toward his fields. And so he pulls this man in close. And he says, I, I have a matter to discuss with you. And he raises the matter of Naomi's field. And he says, Naomi, who, who we all know, she recently returned from Moab. She came back with nothing to her name. But she has this field outside of town that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. And apparently she has posted it for sale, probably to support her and Ruth. Possibly to pay off outstanding debts that they still owe. And Boaz says, rather than let this land leave our family, leave our clan, leave the, the line of, of kinsmen, which would be shameful in that culture, shouldn't we, shouldn't we, her family, do something about it for her? Why don't we buy the field instead, instead of letting a stranger come in and complicate negotiations? And in this way, we could also preserve the honor of our family name. 
And if we read between the lines, this other kinsman redeemer seems to think this is a pretty good idea, right? He gets to add to his land holdings. He gets to expand what property he owns. And as a a sort of added bonus, he gets the honor of looking like a, a redeemer, right? Someone doing something noble on behalf of his family. He gets to be honored there at the city gate by engaging in this act of redemption. So he says, sure, sign me up. I'll be the redeemer. How much do I owe? But in verse 5, Boaz explains that there's another facet to this work of redemption. One that's going to be more costly than the man anticipated. He says, not only is the land in need of redemption, not only does Naomi need, need the funds for the sale of her field, but there is also a widow left behind and in this family line. Ruth the Moabite. And in order that we care for preserving the family name, not just by buying the field, but but for the possibility that there might be a future heir traced to and attributed to the line of Elimelech, who died without an heir. In order that that might happen, then whoever redeems this field should also redeem Ruth, take her to be his wife. And at the knowledge of this second piece of redemption, we see that the work of, of, of the Redeemer has become costly. It's become complicated. It's complicated, number one, because now there's, there's two costs. There's the cost of the field, which would be significant, but there's also the cost of taking Ruth to be his wife and providing for her. Maybe that was more than this kinsman redeemer was willing or able to take on in terms of finances. Secondly, if he were to marry Ruth and Ruth were to have an heir, a child with him, then that child would actually become the legal claimant to the field he's just purchased. The inheritance would pass down directly to that child of their descendants. third complicating factor is that Boaz has just revealed that this woman, this widow who needs to be redeemed, is from Moab. Right? The despised Moabites. And this itself may have raised the Redeemer's suspicions. It may have called into question whether he would be seen as doing an honorable thing or a shameful thing in the eyes of the other villagers. He's confronting the reality that to be a redeemer is going to be costly. Far more costly than he first imagined. It will cost him financially. It will cost him his independence. It could cost him his reputation there at the city gate. And so he he bows out. He hands his sandal over to Boaz. And he says, you do the redeeming. This is too costly, too complicated for me. But this gives Boaz a chance to step in and be a true redeemer. And Boaz engages in this work of redemption, not grudgingly, not flippantly, but having counted the cost, 
and found the reward to be greater than the sacrifice. Boaz is eager to redeem Ruth. Because Boaz experiences this work of redemption as the the love of God moving through him. He knows it's sacrificial. But it's also the gift he is choosing and most desires to give. Boaz considers this well worth the cost. He gets to participate in something that matters to the heart of God. Cost of redemption is great, but so too is the reward. Sometimes our, our family, when we have some screen time together, will turn on a, a BBC show called The Repair Shop. And if you watch, it's a it's a reality TV sort of construct. But it's it's set in England and it's you know it's reality TV, so there are all these real British families who come from all over England, and they bring their old family heirlooms to this this shop that's filled with all of these world-class restorationists. There are people who work on leather. There are people who work on repairing clockwork. There are people who who work on furniture. And they bring these, these valued, treasured items that have been in their family for generations but have now fallen into disrepair. And they say, can you do something with this? Can you, can you restore this? Can you bring it back to its former glory? And, and the show, you know, helps us see how these restorationists spend many times days, even sometimes weeks, mending and fixing and repairing and redeeming these items. But many times when we've watched the show, we've thought, who's paying for all of this? You know, here's this, this item that may seem insignificant to everyone else, but it's, it's important to this family member. But but they're clearly putting thousands and thousands of dollars of time into fixing up this one little thing. Right? If, if any of these families had to cover the cost of the repairs themselves, likely they, they wouldn't be able to afford it. But instead, in the show, all the repair work is done as a gift. And it's done simply as a way to restore these items back to these families so that they can be enjoyed for generations yet to come. The work is is costly, but it's given as a gift with the future in mind. And I think in in a similar way, Boaz, in his role as the redeemer, the restorer, the restorationist God has chosen for Ruth and Naomi, he's committed to whatever the cost is, so that he might see what's been empty You might see that which is in disrepair redeemed and restored. And he has in mind that this act of redemption affects not only himself, but it will affect generations yet to come. And so to him, the cost is small compared to the reward. This morning, I want to close by just looking at these last two verses before we, we get to the end of Ruth next week. Again, I think it shows us that Boaz is thinking toward the future. It says, having having sealed the deal, he's got the sandal in his hand, right? Boaz, verse 9, announces to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, 
Kilian, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Boaz engages in the filling work of a redeemer. Boaz engages in the costly work of a redeemer. Because Boaz, I think, knows that the work of redemption is ultimately about family. It's about bringing together the people God desires from from unlikely places to knit together as one redeemed family. And if you notice here in these two verses... Boaz pushes the attention away from himself. He doesn't seek to to honor himself and and the, the nobility of the act that he's engaging in. Instead, he names the family that he intends to redeem. He draws attention to Elimelech and to Kilian and to Malon and to Ruth and to Naomi. And he prays that that God would raise up and restore this family. That their names, their their lineage would not disappear, but would endure for generations yet to come. And so everything Boaz does here is other-centered. It's costly, but it's it's beautifully redemptive. And it's it's creating this, this greater family that God desires to pull together. In so many ways, I think Boaz foreshadows... Boaz anticipates the kind of redemption that we enjoy as God's people. Through the Redeemer, God raises up and sends to us in the person of Jesus. It's a Redeemer that actually comes through Boaz and through Elimelech's own family line. He's a Redeemer who desires to fill us up where we are empty. He's a desire who has count, he's a redeemer who has counted the cost of our redemption. Right? His own blood. The offering of his own life. But he does so because he has a vision of what is to come. Of pulling us out of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of his everlasting light. He decided that we were worth that redeeming cost. Let me pray for us that we might respond to that Redeemer today. Lord Jesus, you know where we are. You know where we have been lost to. You know where we have been emptied out. You know where we have experienced trauma grief. Jesus, you hear the voice of our lament. And yet you come gently, patiently, but full of commitment and resolve to be our Redeemer. Jesus, would you work in each of our lives individually? Jesus, we pray that you would be the redeemer of this corporate body and family to 
fill up what is still lacking, to call in those who are still missing and lost. And Lord, would we gladly respond as Boaz has here to engage in the work of redemption through us. May we spend ourselves so that we might taste of what you delight and desire to do. Pray these things in your strong and mighty name, Jesus. Amen.